Jewish Education and Media is pleased to present L'Chaim, a program that highlights the people, issues, and events of importance to the Jewish community. Now here is your host, Rabbi Mark Golub. I'm Mark Golub. And when most of us are asked about the names of boats, ships, that have any meaning to us, well, many of us might say the Titanic. Those who know the history of Israel might say the Exodus, the ship that represented all those who brought Holocaust survivors to the shores of Palestine. And then there's one more ship I hope you know about, which like the Exodus represents a very important piece of Jewish history, the SS St. Louis. My guess is that most younger American Jews have no idea what the St. Louis refers to. But the SS St. Louis epitomizes in one ship the attitude of Western nations towards saving Jews from Nazi genocide, including tragically the United States of America. On May 13th of 1939, six years after Hitler came to power, six months after Kristallnacht, the SS St. Louis was a German ocean liner that left Hamburg, Germany, carrying 937 Jews who were fleeing Nazi Germany. Captain Gustav Schroeder was at the helm, a true righteous Gentile who is honored today at Yad Vashem, Israel's National Holocaust Memorial. The ship's destination was Cuba, and all of the Jewish passengers had legal tourist visas to enter that country. From the moment the SS St. Louis arrived on the coast of Cuba, the rest of the story and the fate of virtually all of the Jews on board became a story of betrayal, cowardice, American ignominy, and tragedy. Officials refused to recognize the Jews' visas. Cuban immigration laws had been changed in the time it took the St. Louis to cross the Atlantic. A few Cuban nationals and Jews with valid U.S. visas were the only ones permitted to disembark, 28 in all. The remainder of the Jewish passengers were simply sent away. Captain Schroeder decided to seek entry for his Jewish passengers in the United States and headed for the coast of Florida. But the Roosevelt administration under Secretary of State Cordell Hull refused to permit the St. Louis to dock on American shores. Canada followed suit and refused to accept any of the passengers on board the St. Louis. To his everlasting credit, 
Captain Schroeder refused to return to Germany. He was determined to do whatever he could to save his Jewish passengers from Hitler's final solution. Ultimately, the St. Louis docked in Antwerp, Belgium on June 17, 1939. About 30% were accepted by Great Britain and traveled to the UK by other ships. After much negotiation, the remaining 619 Jewish passengers were finally permitted to disembark in Antwerp and were taken in by France, Belgium, and the Netherlands. Of course, the Nazis would invade and occupy all of those countries. And in the end, 30% of the passengers of the SS St. Louis, 254 Jews were murdered in the Shoah, made at Auschwitz and Sobibor. A movie about the SS St. Louis was made in 1976 with an all-star cast, including Faye Dunaway, Oscar Werner, and Max Van Sodow, portraying Captain Gustav Schroeder. The movie was called Voyage of the Damned which characterizes the story of the SS St. Louis and of its 937 Jewish passengers. On this edition of the Chaim, I have the honor of being joined by a survivor of that voyage. He was only 11 years old at the time, which means that as we tape this edition of the Chaim, he is 92 years of age. It is a joy for me to introduce to you Hans Fischer, who is important to say has lived a life of distinction that is totally apart from his being one of the survivors of the St. Louis in the United States. Hans Fischer became one of America's leading figures in the field of the science of nutrition with a long and distinguished career as professor of nutritional sciences at Rutgers University, where he remains Professor Emeritus. Hans is responsible for a series of major scientific discoveries dealing with diet and alcohol addiction. And Hans was a pioneer in finding ways to control cholesterol and heart disease. And for 20 years, Hans Fischer served as chairman of the Department of Nutritional Sciences, where he built a faculty that excelled in basic research and inspired a generation of nutritional scientists. And Hans Fischer, thank you so much for joining us on L'Chaim. It's an honor for me to meet you. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So Hans... May I begin by correcting a statement that you made, which is very crucial to the whole story. Absolutely, please do. Yeah, it was not visas that we passengers had. We were sold permits, landing 
permits. There's still some ambiguity as to exactly how much was paid for each permit. I was under the impression, based on what my mother told me, that she and her parents, my grandparents, had paid $500 per permit. Others have said that the permits were only $300. But be that as it may, it was a very substantial sum. Whom did you pay? Whom did the people pay? The money was paid to the immigration section of the Cuban government, which was under the direction of a man named Benitez. And this is, I think, one of the most fascinating aspects of this entire story. And let me say it right up front. The president of Cuba, a man named Brew, only found out when the boat was just on its way from Hamburg to Havana that Benitez, his minister of immigration, had pocketed the entire sum that the passengers had paid. Wow. So we're talking somewhere between three and five hundred thousand dollars, mm -hmm. which in 1939 was a very hefty sum of money. Absolutely, absolutely. When Brew found out about this, he immediately called Benitez and asked him for a cut, whereupon Benitez boarded the next boat from Havana to Florida and left never to return and never to give a penny back to Boo. That's an amazing story. And Hans, I've read a lot about the St. Louis. I never saw that part of the story. It's interesting to know. The American Joint Distribution Committee immediately when they found out that the Cuban government wasn't going to permit entry into Cuba, they contacted one of their lawyers, a man named Berenson, who is quoted, and I read it in their archives, he's quoted as having said, leave this to me, I know how to deal with these Latinos. He took a plane to Havana and he was able to get a, an audience with President Brew. The story is that he offered Brew $19,000. Brew was so insulted that he kicked him out of his office and refused to deal with him or with the American Joint Distribution Committee again. And all this is documented. This is what really happened. Okay. Now, um, by the way, I must say, and I said this to you 
while we were talking before this actual taping begins, but Hans, you're 92 years old. And yet, you know, you seem to have enormous energy. You're obviously as sharp as a tack. And in general, is your health good? And I, you're married and how is life for you these days? Well, I'm very lucky because I have a wonderful wife and I have wonderful children and nine grandchildren. And uh, that's what keeps me going. And I, I study Jewish texts with uh, a very wonderful uh, colleague up in the Boston area. That's what, what uh, as, I do. As, What text do you study, Hans? You name it, some Talmud, some uh, history, uh, Maimonides, Soloveitchik, a great many. Fabulous, just fabulous. What is yeah. your wife's name? My wife's name is Ruth, Ruth Hirschberg. Her family is from the same town. We were both born in Breslau, which is now Wroclaw, Poland. And uh, her family left Germany very early, relatively early in 1936, and went to Cuba, uh, to uh, Chile, to Santiago. And the whole family eventually was able to get to Chile. And actually, my mother and her mother were friends in Germany, in Breslau. And uh, she remembered, my mother-in-law remembered that she called my mother on my birthday in uh, 1928, when I was born on March 4th, 1928, to tell her that she was getting engaged and they told her, I'm very sorry, you can't speak to her because she's in labor. That's fabulous. <laughs> anyway, she remembered that date. And on my 21st birthday, she called me up from Chile to wish me a happy birthday. And that renewed the relationship. And I went to Chile and we got married in 19... 50. Oh, but so 50 to 12. You've That's been married 70 years. So we've been almost married 70 years. Well, we've been married 70 years. We've been very, very fortunate. And how many children do you have? We have three children, two of whom are big shot physicians in the Boston area. <laughs> General and you uh, of Mass Medical Center and the third one, the oldest, my daughter is in Washington, D.C. She is a clinical psychologist. So all three are in the medical field? Yeah, kind of. And how many grandchildren did you say? We have nine. We had ten <laughs> and unfortunately I'm lost sorry. one. That's terrible. But at the same, it is just marvelous. Yeah. And, you know, it goes without saying, but it's always mentioned that the way in which people who endured any piece of the Shoah, 
that ultimately their ability to survive and transcend is a statement of Jewish survival and transcendence. So mazal to, uh, mazal to you. Thank you. Uh, okay, before I ask you, Hans, to take us through your recollections of your journey on the St. Louis, you were 11 years old at the time. It's certainly old enough for you to have a sense of the things that you were experiencing, but it is 80 years ago. Have you stayed in touch with other people who have, who are still alive? And throughout the years, was there any sense of community among the people who did survive the St. Louis? Yes. What was there that was like? A, there is a small group, maybe 10, 15 people, mm -hmm. and there have been a number of get togethers. For instance, uh, I think it was in 2010, uh, Mr. Krakow, I think, was able to arrange a meeting with the employees of the State Department, of our U.S. State Department in Washington. Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State, and uh, she invited the small group of us, and Burns, who was the Assistant Secretary of State, apologized to us for not having permitted us entry into the U.S. in 1939. Okay, I want to stay on this for one moment. And again, sure. it's all out of order. Who cares? You've mentioned FDR. You've mentioned the American administration during the era of the World War II and of the St. Louis. What is your own feeling about Franklin Delano Roosevelt? Well, at the time, I still remember when the boat suddenly turned away from Cuba to start its, on its way back, I was playing checkers with a friend of mine and he looked at me and he smiled and I never forget that and he said, Roosevelt is going to take care of this. Don't worry, Hans. Mm -hmm. Famous last words. Yes. When Roosevelt died, my mother was so taken as though her father had died. It went that far. Yes. So I had no idea until I started reading history. I understand. Of what he was really like. Okay. I want to take you back. Yeah. Okay. I want to start your story before the St. Louis. Yes. Explain to us, where were you born? Who were your parents? And what was your home like before Kristallnacht? I'm glad you asked because when I am asked to speak about the St. Louis, <clears throat> I like to begin the story by saying that the story of the St. Louis really began on October 27th, 1938. October 27th, 1938 was a day when the Nazis rounded up approximately 30,000 Polish Jews 
and brought them to the border between Poland and Germany and then forced them into the no man's land between the two borders. Mm -hmm. And at first the Poles didn't want to accept them. Mm -hmm. But what really happened in terms of the St. Louis is that one of the families, a couple with a daughter, the daughter wrote a postcard to her brother who was in Paris living with an uncle. And the boy's name was uh, Herschel Greenspan. Herschel Greenspan was 17 years old. He got his sister's card where she pleaded with him to get his uncle perhaps to send them some money because they were cold. The Nazis hadn't permitted them even to take any clothes along and they didn't have enough food and drink. Herschel got the card. He was so incensed, he went into a sports goods store, bought a gun, went to the German embassy, and you know the rest. Yes. He shot uh, a German diplomat, ironically, a diplomat who was an anti-Nazi, very sad and uh, killed him and Hitler used this event right. as the excuse mm -hmm. for Kristallnacht. Yes. Because if it hadn't been for Kristallnacht, none of us would have been on the St. Louis. Now my father was picked up on, on the, the morning after Kristallnacht on November 10th by the Gestapo and taken to Buchenwald as what, were. What, what was your father's name? George Fisher. Okay. And uh, what, he did was, he do? What, what did he do? He was actually a lawyer, but after he married my mother, he went into my grandfather, uh, my mother's father's business, which he had a shoe factory in uh, Breslau and he worked for him there. Okay, and what, where are you living at this time? The night of Kristallnacht, where are you? We are in Germany, in Breslau. In Breslau. Yeah. And do you know why your father was picked up? Was he picked up simply because he was a Jewish man? Yes, I, I opened the door to the Gestapo men I let them in, they were very polite. They were not in any uniform, they were in civilian clothes. And they very politely said to him, uh, we have to take you along, we are going to the police station. Please take a small uh, bag or suitcase and put some underwear and some socks in because I think uh, you will need them, very polite. And my father left with them. Maybe 10 minutes later, the doorbell rang like mad continuously. And I went and opened it again. And there were two SS men in their uniform and they came in and they shouted, where are your weapons? Where are you hiding your weapons? 
and they opened every drawer, went into the bookcases, threw everything on the floor, kicked everything with their boots for no more than maybe 10, 15 minutes and then left again. And then said some, you know, anti-Semitic statements, you goddamn Jews and left. By the way, you know, it sounds terrifying. Was it, it terrifying? Was. It was, it absolutely was. And you were at, your your father is no longer there. So no. you're with your mother. And my your, mother and my sister. And your sister. Your sister older or younger? Younger. What's your mother's name? Hannah, Johanna. Hannah. And your sister was named? My sister's name is Ruth. She lives in New Jersey. Okay. So you have a sister Ruth and a wife Ruth. And a wife Ruth, right. By the way, Hans, I have a wife Ruth. Oh, so we yeah. have at least one thing in common. Right. Okay. Right. So what happens to your father after he's taken away? What happened to my father is, first, I got to say that as soon as these SS men left, my mother gets on the phone and calls up my father's best friend, who was a lawyer, Jewish. And he went into hiding, and so he was never picked up by the Gestapo. And being a lawyer also helped because he, it, there was still a little bit of, if you can call it, decency left. And so this lawyer friend of my father's harangued the Gestapo to let my father out. And my father was let out on January 6, 1939. So we're talking about two months later because my father was a veteran of the German army in World War I. Mm -hmm. And he was not the only one. There were a whole bunch of Jewish people who had been, my father was even a lowly officer in the army. And he had also gotten the Iron Cross, which was a kind of a medal in the army. And with that, they let him out with the proviso that he leave within two weeks. And he left on January 19th, 1939. He left for? He left for New York. He had a visa for Panama, but you had to go by way of New York. When he got to New York, he had some friends there and they pleaded with him not to go to Panama. They told him, the weather is so God awful, don't go to Panama, go someplace else. And he had no trouble getting a visa for Cuba, and so he went to Cuba. By the way, I, I don't know whether, again, the extent to which you were aware of this, you're roughly a 10-year-old child here, but your father is being sent away from you and your mother and your daughter, uh, your sister. Yeah. Um, it, it sounds, you know, sort of bizarre that they would say to your father, you must leave without saying to the entire family, you must leave. How do you remember you experiencing the fact that your father was leaving and not only was he leaving Germany, he was leaving you? Well, you have to remember 
in the olden days, family relationships were very close. We lived, I would say, as much with my grandparents as with each other. And so my grandparents really, and my grandfather, the one who owned the factory was fairly well off. I know, for example, he, he gave the money for, the, for those landing permits in Cuba. Mm -hmm. I don't know that my mother would have known where to get it. And I don't recall at all feeling lost or bereft I understand. Because, because my father was gone. You've explained it well. Yeah. All right. It's not too much. I mean, it's basically half a year later that you, your mother, and your sister wind up on the SS St. Louis. Do you remember, was it something you were excited about? This voyage is described as from the from the passenger's point of view, especially before you get to Cuba, as if it were a vacation cruise to freedom, that it was a lovely time, that there was an effort made by the captain and the staff to really treat the passengers very, very well. How do you remember the feeling as you cross the Atlantic on the SS St. Louis? exactly the way you described it. We felt as though we had already been liberated now and we felt free and looking forward to the reunion. We enjoyed life on the boat. We took advantage of swimming pools and good food, and it, it was absolutely wonderful. That's really. wonderful okay. Um, the boat approaches Cuba. The boat is refused to let, your landing visas are denied. You can't land, you can't disembark. Do you as an 11 year old understand what's happening? And if Absolutely. you do, how do you, how do you, so how did that, how are you feeling and what was the mood and how did it affect your mother? It was, it was such a letdown. It is, it is hard to, to describe. You also have to add to that, that my father and of course other people who were in Cuba came in little rowboats and circled the St. Louis. And that was not a nice event because we were so high up and there were so many of these little rowboats, you couldn't understand one word. I could barely, barely see my father. Could you make him out? I could make him out and he could make us out, but we couldn't talk with each other at all. That sounds it was, like it was very painful. Very painful. It was very painful. My mother was also, I should say, we were very lucky. We met a lady with her daughter on the boat. And one of these serendipitous events, it turned out that her husband 
was also in Cuba. And he had met my father in Cuba. And guess what? They were exactly the same age. They had the same birthday, July 18th. Wow. 1890. Isn't that strange? That is strange. And they ended up to rent an apartment together in Havana. Amazing. Waiting for her, his wife and daughter and yes. my mother, my sister and me to move yes. in together. And we did eventually. That's lovely. Yeah. All right. So you're on the boat. You're now denied entry to Cuba. As you say, it's an enormous letdown. Then this friend with whom you're playing checkers tells you, don't worry, Roosevelt will take care of us. Yeah. But that turns out not to be true. Canada right. does not accept you. And obviously, at some point, you understand you're heading back to Europe. Oh, absolutely. The trip we were We were, I don't want to brag about this. I don't think it's something to brag about. But I think the whole period already, bef long before Kristallnacht, had already done something to us. For example, my friends and I in school, and by that time we went to a Jewish school, we never went to a public school, we had to be very careful when we came out of school, Hitler youth boys would try, lie in wait to beat us up. So we had to be very cautious about how we moved about the city. It wasn't just with the, with the uh, Kristallnacht and after, it was long before that we knew what was going on and we were What's the right word? We were very much advanced beyond our age in terms of the knowledge of what was going on. So I should add, there were other things too. You did not mention, for example, there were a couple of people who committed suicide on the boat. And we observed that and we were present when they lowered the coffin into the sea for burial and so on. All these things, we may have been 11, but we were 25. I understand. In terms of our mood and in terms of our outlook on what was going on and what would happen. I'm really, really sorry. Hans, okay. yeah. did you ever meet and know Captain Schroeder personally? No. Okay. The closest I came to him was we held a, a get-together. I don't remember, must have been in the 1980s or so in Florida. And a nephew of Captain Schroeder's came and he gave us his cap. And that cap was the first step in our writing a letter to Yad Vashem 
to make sure that he be one of the righteous among the nations. The letter said he had told us that he did not under any circumstances want to take the boat back to Germany. And he had plans to scuttle the boat off the coast of Scotland. That's what he had planned to do and set it on fire. And he figured that the British would rescue us and let us stay in England. What you didn't say before, and I think it needs, it's, it's fairly important, needs saying is when the boat got relatively near Europe, a very, very intelligent and uh, great negotiator from the Joint Distribution Committee by the name of Trevor Roper was the European representative of the Joint. And he is the one who got the Belgian government to agree to take about a quarter of the passengers. That preceded England and, and France and Holland. He was the first one. And when he had succeeded in getting the Belgian government to take a quarter, then Holland, France and England followed suit and decided to each take one of a, a quarter. Okay, what happens to you, your mother and your sister? Okay. We arrive in uh, Antwerp and it's done by lot. We had no particular connection to any of these countries. And so they just did it by lot and we ended up France. And I must also say there was such a difference and that is based only on what I read in how the Jews in general were treated in Belgium versus France. The Catholic Church in Belgium went out of its way to save and hide Jews. And very few of them were murdered. By contrast, as you well know, in France, the church and the French police were almost worse than the Nazis were. And I'll tell you very quickly what, what some interesting things about France. We ended up in a little town in central France called Laval, very small. When I came there, I thought I always was a big reader. I always read a lot. And when I arrived there, I thought I was being transported back into the Middle Ages. Mm -hmm. If you can believe this, this was 1939. Mm -hmm. I don't recall that I ever saw a car. Everything was horse-drawn carriages. There were no paved streets. It was all cobblestones. We stayed in a, I don't know if you want to call it a hotel, a hostel, I would guess is a better word. There was no running water. We had to go out in the yard and pump 
water into jugs and bring it inside. There were no indoor toilets. There were only outdoor toilets. One day, a beautiful car carriage pulled up and the, the livery guy had beautiful white gloves on, jumps off and said, Madame Fischer, looking for my mother. My mother spoke a little French and he spoke to her and my mother said that he bought an invitation from his boss who owned an estate about 20 minutes away from Laval and he wanted to invite us and we made arrangements that he would pick us up the following week. Following week he came, he picked up my mother, my sister and me in this carriage and took us to a very nice estate. There was a beautiful orchard. I still remember there were still apples hanging from the trees. We were ushered into a very old, like a castle, an elderly gentleman sitting at a table. We were given some tea and maybe some cake or something. And he told my mother that he invited us because the local priest had for years always mentioned that Jews had horns on their head. And he had never met a Jew in his life and he had heard there were Jews in Laval. So he wanted, he didn't quite believe the priest. So he wanted to invite us to see if that was really true that we had horns. Unbelievable. Anyway, we were very, very lucky. My father, who, as you know, was in Cuba, and this other gentleman too, who was a physician, they got um, visa. Now this time they really got visas, not permits. And the, uh, the problem then was there were no boats. You, you couldn't find a boat. And then World War II broke out on September 1st, 1939, so it got even worse. And then another problem was that the US started the so-called Lend-Lease program where they provided Russia and England with uh, arms and uh, ammunition. And so the Nazis torpedoed boats right and left, including American boats, even though America didn't enter the war until 1940. Anyway, finally, something else happened. The Spanish Civil War was over around the same time. And there were many, many Spaniards that had fled into France. In fact, in Laval, where we were, there were many Spaniards who would come in. In fact, one of them taught me how to play chess. <laughs> anyway, finally, the French took a French boat that had already been put into mothballs and refurbished it 
The boat was under the name De Grasse, and we got tickets, or my father got us tickets for December. And we, by that time, the Nazis were already bombing cities. And we went to, I think we went to Le Havre by train from Laval. When we arrived, the locomotive was hit by a bomb and it was a, a steam engine. So the explosion made an enormous racket because of the steam escaping. But we were very lucky. We didn't get uh, hurt in any way. And we were able to get to a hotel in Le Havre overnight. And the next morning we boarded this boat and we went to Southampton, England. We were in Southampton for 12 days until a convoy, they told us, of close to 200 ships had assembled. And under escort of two British warships, all of these boats went to New York. Wow. We lucky, not one boat was sunk. Mm -hmm. We it took one week, the trip from Southampton to New York. In New York, we, meaning my mother, my sister, and I, and this lady and her daughter, we were put on Ellis Island because we didn't have papers to stay in the States. We were met by people from the uh, highest. My mother told me that uh, the highest man told her, we have very good connections in Washington now, and we could arrange for you to stay here. My mother said, thank you, but no thank you. We would like to be reunited with my husband, our father. And so that was the end of that. I have found, in fact, I have a copy of that interview that I just mentioned. I picked that up at the highest office in New York. And then we waited for, again, for one of these luxury tourist boats from New York to Havana, where we were treated like royalty by the passengers. You know, when they heard who, were, who we were, they just couldn't stop giving us more candy and stuff like that. Anyway, so we were reunited and we stayed in Havana for just about a year. And uh, by that time we were able to get uh, visas to come to the States. And uh, again, we took a boat were met again by a highest person. I got that piece of paper too, because this time we stayed. And uh, my mother worked as a nurse, usually night shift. My father couldn't find a job for love or money. He was 50 years old and uh, it wasn't easy to get a job. And of course, as a lawyer, he couldn't do a damn thing. What could he do with German law? Anyway, he got a <clears throat> first mortgage 
from the uh, Baron Hirsch Foundation. Do you know about that foundation? They yes. gave mortgages to Jews who were willing to go on a farm. Mm -hmm. And my father got a mortgage for a farm in Vineland, New Jersey. And so we ended up on a small poultry farm. And uh, I was the, uh, I learned uh, to become a carpenter, a roofer, an electrician and a plumber. I was particularly good at plumbing. I think I laid all new water pipes on that, on that farm. This was in 1941. I was bar mitzvah two weeks after we arrived. I was very lucky. A very nice librarian in the public library took me in tow and she said, I'm going to give you the books that you should read so that you learn English. And she did. Anyway, I graduated valedictorian of my class of 700 people. So. Azalto, that's fabulous. Hans, did you ever blame God for what was happening to you? No. Did your mother? I don't, I don't think so. Good. I don't. <laughs> Good. Before we end, you experienced the Shoah in a unique way, but you were really living through the, the beginnings of what ultimately leads to 6 million murders of Jews. You know, Hans, the younger generation don't really understand the Shoah. It's like it was, you know, there's the Civil War and then there's World War II. It's ancient history in a, in, in a sense. And the question I want you to speak to is as you look back on your personal experience, from the time of Kristallnacht, to the time your father's arrested, to the time he's sent away, to the time you go on St. Louis, to the time you're refused entry to Cuba and that you ultimately have to come back to Europe and you end up in Belgium and then you're in France and then you're again on a boat coming over to America, but you're part of this huge convoy because you need to be protected from uh, German submarines and those that would torpedo you. And now you create this wonderful life for yourself, a very successful life that is not only successful, it is a life that literally gives other people more understanding. You help people to live because of the research that you were part of. But I want you to, to just reflect upon what you wish American Jews understood about the experience you had as a child that you feel many American Jews just don't get at all. Is there anything you can say to me? It's a very, very tough question because it, it's, it's so complex because there's so many facets to it. I told you there was the meeting at the State Department which was only for State Department employees. And, but they, they have a large number of employees. Anyway, 
a young woman asked me very specifically, how did you feel and how do you feel coming to this country after we didn't let you in mm. at that time? Mm. How did you feel about that and how do you feel? And I don't know, it came to me in, in a second when she asked that question, I said, you know, it certainly isn't the country. The country is a objective concept. The country didn't keep me out. It's people, people who did these things. And we have to learn how to interact and to react and to communicate with people so that they fully understand what it is that they're really doing. And I feel that's going on right now. I mean, you and I know it isn't just the remnants of the Holocaust now. What we're going through with the pandemic, what we're going through in foreign policy and Middle Eastern policy and in, in, in American politics, this country has not been so divided, if ever. And it's very difficult to know how to deal with this. But I don't think that being ashamed of your Jewishness has ever helped anybody. On the contrary, I've always noticed at the university at Rutgers that I was more respected for observing my Jewish holidays than the many other Jews who would come in on Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur and old classes and not other people had no respect for that, I have noticed. But it's a difficult thing to get across. And uh, I think the answer is the education has to start very, very early. Hans Fischer, it has been wonderful to get to know you. And you, you are a patient and wonderful teacher, by the way. Uh, I, I wish I had had a chance to study with you at Rutgers. It doesn't matter what the subject is. <laughs> I, I wish you called Tuvahatzlacha. You've been so kind to tell the story that you've told to us in as much detail and with as much thoughtful insight as you have. I wish you and your wife and your three children and your nine grandchildren, you all should be healthy and have a good life. And again, Hans, when this is over, I hope you and I get a chance to be together and that we continue the discussion in one way or another. Thank you so very much for being- Thank you, thank you for inviting me. Thank you for inviting me. It was a real, real pleasure to meet with you. There you have it, the story of a remarkable man, Hans Fischer, one of America's great pioneers in nutritional science, who as an 11 year old boy was among the 900 and some passengers who were on the SS St. Louis. I hope you enjoyed meeting him, hearing him tell his story. Of course, as always, I invite you to be in touch with me with any thoughts or comments you may have 
to anything, any ideas expressed on this edition of L'Chaim, please email me at rabbigolub at jbstv.org, or you can write me at post office box 360, Stamford, Connecticut, 06904. And remember, you can now hear L'Chaim on the L'Chaim podcast. And so until the next time, I'm Mark Golub. L'chaim, my friends, to life. L'chaim is a presentation of Jewish education in media. We would be pleased to send a complimentary DVD of this program to anyone who wishes to support JBS with a tax-deductible gift of $36, double chai, or more. Simply visit the JBS website at jbstv.org and click on the Donate button to make a donation by PayPal or your credit card. And please indicate the program for which you would like a DVD. Or you can send your tax-deductible check to JBS, Post Office Box 360, Stamford, Connecticut, 06904. Or you can call the JBS Pledge Line at 833-MY-JBS-TV. That's 833-695-2788. And again, please remember to indicate which program you would like to receive with our compliments. We thank you for your kind support.